0: I had an illuminating conversation with Dan Roth, who is the managing director of the Forbes M&A Group. Dan, who is an investment banker, but also wears the hat of a business owner and former business owner who sold multiple businesses, gives some interesting perspective on the hot mergers and acquisition market that's happening in healthcare today. And also helps us dive down into some of the most important and critical elements The do's and don'ts, if you will, of selling your own business during this superheated time. I think you'll find it interesting and informative. Enjoy.
1: It's time for the Healthcare Huddle. Simplifying the business of healthcare. Presented by Encompass Medical. Devoted to helping organizations succeed with customized medical practice management services. Visit EncompassMedical.com today. Now, here's your host, Michael Zerbus.
0: I'm very happy today to have our guest, Dan Roth, join the show for a couple different reasons. Dan is the managing director of Forbes M&A Group. Dan is a very accomplished and experienced investment banker. He's a trusted advisor. I know I've been talking with Dan for years about different things. And every time I talk with him, I learn something. He's a great strategist. In the field, he's a renowned expert and he's an acclaimed speaker and he's helped thousands of business owners navigate sales, business sales, mergers, acquisitions, capital raises, debt restructuring. Pretty much he's had his hand in every aspect of that world. But for me, what sets Dan apart is the knowledge that he brings to bear to each deal. And the knowledge isn't just the specific industry knowledge that I just articulated, but it's also from the knowledge he's gained from his own entrepreneurial journey. And so I know Dan's backstory a little bit, and he's been his own uh, entrepreneur. He's built businesses and sold them. He's bought businesses. He's done the whole thing when he's the guy uh, having to make those decisions. And I think that extra perspective is the difference that makes the difference when you work with Dan. And so having walked the walk for me anyways is very important. Dan, thanks for taking the time and welcome.
1: Michael, it's great to be here. And thanks for inviting me to speak with you today.
0: Yeah, it's it's obviously my pleasure. Dan, as I articulated in the beginning of this, I'm wondering if you just might share with our listeners a little bit about your backstory, because it's unique, it's different, and it speaks to that experiential perspective that you bring to all of these encounters that you have? I'd be happy to. I'll start with where I started my career, which was
1: in college. I was fortunate to start a software development company that focused on small and mid-sized businesses. We built software for lots of companies, primarily in the
0: Western United States. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I got to interrupt you. I'm sorry. That's crazy right there. I mean, you're in college and you started a software company.
1: Well, I I sort of fell into it, Michael. I I had a job as a programmer where I didn't think I knew what I was doing. And as I got more proficient, clients of that company kept coming to me asking me to write custom software for them and Hmm. eventually turned that into a one-person company that grew to three people and then five people. And I was getting my college degree and was able to connect with a lot of really smart computer science students. So most of my employees came from the college that I attended, which Interesting. meant I was able to recruit some of the best and brightest that were really just looking for work experience. But that enabled me to build a killer team of developers that, you know, even though we weren't that old, we were really skilled at what we did and the, the business rewarded us. And So I did that, ran that all the way through college. And then when I graduated, I was able to sell that company. I actually sold it to my biggest competitor who had offered many times to buy me. And so that's how I sold that company. And after that, I worked for an international company for several years. I got the good fortune of traveling all over the world at a fairly young age. And while I was doing that, I met up with a guy in the United Kingdom and he was working for Lloyd's Bank of London. And he was their director of technology and he had an idea for a new kind of software for international banks, but he didn't know how to build it. So we formed a partnership and I actually hired back many of my former employees and we built that software for international banks. And we ended up selling it to over 400 banks around the world. Wow. And basically realized that to build that company further, I would have to raise money and hire more people and live on an airplane traveling all over the world and decided that wasn't what I was up to. So I went ahead and sold that company again. So that was my second business sale. And so those those are a couple of the software companies that I built and
0: sold. <laughs> it's fascinating to me. I mean, you know, you're a classic entrepreneur, right, Dan? You, you're you opportunistic. You saw a market need, right, in both cases. And you kinda of just jumped in and said, I'll do this. And I'm curious as to maybe one or two of the big lessons you learned either in building those companies or in selling them that are applicable and you've seen you know, this same kind of theme throughout your career with other businesses either that you owned or that you've been working with either to buy or sell.
1: The first thought that comes to mind, Michael, is I definitely experienced the imposter syndrome that they talk about where I kept thinking I'm too young and I really shouldn't be running companies and I shouldn't be hiring people yet. So I always, during those years, felt like I was in over my head and yet we Hmm. seemed to do fairly well. So I, I would say on the negative side, I always struggled a little bit on the confidence side that I was maybe a little ahead of the game. And then in terms of the lessons learned from selling those two companies. yeah. Uh, The first one was when I sold my first company to my competitor, I had no idea how you sell a company. I didn't hire any representation. I didn't even use a lawyer till the very end to just paper up the deal we agreed to. I didn't understand business valuation. I didn't understand deal structure. And later in my career, when I got into that kind of work and to look back, I realized that I sold that business for easily less than half of what I should have sold it for. But at the time, it seemed like a lot of money to me. So <laughs> I went ahead and did it. But looking back, I made pretty much every mistake in the book, which is part of what led me to get into ultimately investment banking is is to make sure people didn't make the same mistakes that I did.
0: You know, I have to tell you, I have a similar experience. I built my first business at 26 and sold it at 35 and thought I had knock the ball out of the park. And then only in retrospect did I realize mm, you hit a good double. And if you had just <laughs> had a few batting coaches alongside, you could have hit a grand slam. I had the exact same experience. And I I don't think our experience is unique in terms of, especially if you have built one or two businesses, irrespective of our, our age at the time, I think that when you build a business, I think it's hard for people to imagine the complexity that might be involved in selling it. And it's just a matter of, did I get the number that I thought was close to the number I should have got? Never understanding anything beyond that. And and do you still see that at times now? I mean, even with business owners today, that same kind of maybe lack, they don't know what they don't know. Definitely. I I
1: see that constantly. And, And in fact, I'm talking to some companies right now where the owners were approached by buyers and the buyers sort of drew them into this discussion. And before they know it, they're thinking about selling their companies without any preparation, without any understanding of the process. And I'm sort of watching them go down this path where I'm quite certain they'll, if they do sell, it will be for substantially less than what they're worth. So yeah, unfortunately I see this every day.
0: So let's talk for a second then about What you advise about selling the business, maybe this specifically, but maybe also pulling the camera back and looking at it more globally. I have a kind of a bias based on my experiences, but this is about your thoughts. And so what is the person who's listening to this that owns a medical practice or an imaging company or an IT company? And they're thinking, yeah, I want to sell. Give them the 30,000 foot. Well, I I think it comes down to fundamentals and I learned this
1: after I sold my software companies, I decided I should go be an employee for a while. So I worked for Arthur Anderson as a consultant and my practice there was helping companies build strategic plans with an eye on how to sell the company in the future. Perfect. And when I worked with those companies, I sort of created this framework it wasn't just mine. Of course, Arthur Anderson had plenty of frameworks, but essentially I've came up with five, six, seven, ultimately probably 10 different fundamental things that every business owner should do to grow value and position their company for sale. And I think the first thing I would say is selling the company starts today. You know, Unfortunately, many business owners don't even think about selling their company or their physician practice or their healthcare company until they get later in the stage of the company and then all of a sudden they decide they should sell or maybe a buyer approaches them and now it's a priority but i think business owners should always focus on building a business in a way that will be attractive to buyers and so buyers look for key things that are just fundamental but unfortunately many businesses are lacking the first critical one is quality financial statements I'm amazed how many companies do not have good financial statements.
0: I'm too. I'm with you, Dan. And when I go in and do a consulting gig or, you know, I'm helping somebody out because, you know, they're pals, I'm flabbergasted sometimes what it passes for financial reporting. I, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I, I, I mean, I've seen
1: really good companies that run their companies based on an Excel spreadsheet. They can't even produce for me a profit and loss statement. Oh. I mean, that, that's crazy especially when you realize that your business represents the majority of your net worth. For most business owners, when they sell their company, it should be the largest financial transaction of their entire life. And so why business owners don't give more attention to preparing that business is mind boggling to me. A couple other things that I, that I always encourage business owners to focus on. These are just again, fundamentals is build the business. So you don't have to be there to run it. Yeah, Uh, So many business owners that are quite honestly control freaks run their companies in a way where every single important decision has to go through them. And that's not a company that's very attractive to a buyer because I can't buy that business and grow it without you. And so I always tell businesses, build a team around you, build a bench um, and be able to present your company when you're ready to sell as if you don't need to be there to run it. That makes you a lot more attractive.
0: You know, it's funny, Dan, because in saying that, you make me think of the book Good to Great and being a level five leader where everybody around you is empowered in such a way that you're not that rate limiting factor, whether it's from communication or ideas or, right? And I know that when I built a few businesses and I would tell the team, we're going to start with the end in mind because ultimately the investors want to sell this and it might be seven years from now, but we have to do that. And and we got to get this to a point where everybody is resentful of the salary that I'm taking out because I'm no longer needed. Right. And, absolutely. and if I'm out of a job, we're, do, we're moving in the right
1: direction, I think. A- absolutely. And I, I think any business owner that can position the company that way does themselves a service when they get to the point where they want to sell. Because if you think about it, not only is that attractive to a buyer, it's also better for the seller because presumably the seller is selling because they're ready to retire or move right. into a new phase of their life. Right. But if your entire business revolves around you and you sell that company, the buyer is not going to let you go. You're still going to be there. Now you're going to switch from being an owner to an employee. employee. Yep. You're not like that. So... It's really important that you have a business that doesn't have to have you as part of the success story. I love that. I think one, one other that I would mention is, and again, this is something that I see a lot, especially in healthcare, like IT companies is a customer concentration issue. So you know, if I look at their revenue for the year, if I see more than 10% or maybe 15% of their revenue from a single customer, that's a red flag to me. And that's a red flag to a buyer so i am always advising business owners to spread the revenue across many customers so that you don't have more than say five or ten percent of your revenue with a single customer that will also make you more attractive to
2: quality buyers encompass aims to put the provider back in control of the healthcare equation The Payer Enrollment and Provider Privileging Service takes advantage of long relationships with both private and government payers to help reduce the cost of avoidable denials. The largest denial class is a payer-identified credentialing error. Encompass's team focuses exclusively on satisfying the reattestation needs, maintenance of expirables, and complete taxonomy accuracy for your providers to help capture all that is due to you from each payer. Some of our current clients have seen their provider revenues increase by up to $50,000 a year by having the Encompass Payer Enrollment and Privileging Team focus on management of the intentionally complex, cumbersome payer enrollment process. Contact us today to learn more about Encompass's payer enrollment and privileging process and how we can help improve your revenue capture through strategic and focused payer enrollment management. For more information, go to encompasshds.com, select Credentialing and Payer Enrollment, and click the learn more button to schedule a discovery call. Because the buyer is
0: seeing that concentration as risk. All their eggs are in one basket. And if for any reason that account goes, it's a disproportionate amount of revenue. Am I making that jump correctly? Is that why? Exactly.
1: It's it's a risk factor. So Now, it doesn't mean you cannot sell a business that has high concentration. I I worked on a sale of a company last year that was an IT services company, and the owner literally had 90% of the revenue from a single customer. We were able to sell that company, but he did not get the value that he would have gotten had he had a much more diverse customer base. Because they're pricing in that risk. Exactly. Exactly. And and every buyer, one of the first questions we get with any client is do we have any customer concentration issues? So tackle that ahead of time, spread those customers, build your business in a way where you have a diverse set of customers. And then as a follow-on to that, a big attractive concept right now for many kinds of businesses is the ability to show recurring revenue, contracted monthly, annual recurring revenue, that will help drive your value higher. So if you can evolve your business model so that you have more recurring revenue and less project or one-time revenue, that will help you as well
0: when you start talking to buyers. And I'm assuming as a corollary to that, that the longer those contracts are, the better, because that's a uh, ostensibly somewhat of a risk mitigation factor. It's not everything, but it goes on your side of the balance. Am I right on that or? Exactly, you're spot on because, you
1: know, buyers, they don't like risk. So, you know, what they're trying to do is manage the risk when they buy a business. So what they're first gonna focus on are typical risk factors. An owner who, everything goes through them. Too much customer concentration, flat or declining revenue not as profitable as the business should those are all risk factors or red flags to a buyer that when a business owners focus on selling you should focus on making sure those are not red flags
0: yeah it's you know and it's interesting because i know that i heard you uh speak previously and you had mentioned something about that you also want to sell your business while it's still climbing, not when it's at its apex. Did I hear that correctly? And if I did, could you explain that a little bit? Cause it was interesting to me and it was counterintuitive.
1: Yeah, it, and it is counterintuitive. The, the typical mentality of a business owner who hasn't sold a business before and doesn't have a lot of experience in this area is, my goal as an owner, they think, is to sell my business when I'm at a peak. But the problem with that is the buyer knows you're at a peak And what does that mean for the buyer? So you're essentially saying I'm buying you at the top of the market, or I'm buying your business when there's no room for me to approve it. What business owners who think like that don't take into account is that buyers buy businesses to make a return on their investment. They're not buying businesses just for the fun of it. And how do I make a return on my investment? Well, I want to know that when I buy a business, Over the next two, three, four, five, 10 years, I'm going to grow that business and I'm going to make that business more profitable. So what I want to do as a business owner is sell my company ideally two or three years before the peak where the forecast for the next two or three years looks really great and believable and has a foundation underneath it because then the buyer will be seeing a business that is growing, has a really good backlog, a really good forecast. That will get a buyer much more excited than buying a business that's essentially at the peak of its performance.
0: You know, I gotta stop here for a second because I think what you're saying is really important. And I wanna tie it back to the earlier uh, comments that we were saying about where you and I had maybe um, made some mistakes in selling our businesses ourselves this is a perfect example, in my opinion, tell me if I'm out of my mind, but that this is where you want a trusted advisor by your side, not only for that advice, but also to be able to tell that story to the prospective buyers. And I think it's much harder for me, if I'm the business owner, to tell that story than it is for an advisor who speaks that language, who knows the industry, maybe brings their own cachet in terms of credibility and trustworthiness to be able to get that message across because the ability to get that message across is fundamentally the ability to turn that into dollars, right? Absolutely, yes. And that's what good investment bankers
1: do is they they get inside of a business owner's mentality, their head, their thinking, their company, And they figure out how to tell the story of that entrepreneur and their business in a way that's compelling to buyers. It doesn't mean that the business owner can't tell their story, but it's always better to have somebody else telling the story for you, I believe, because I can brag about somebody more than they're going to brag about themselves. Most people try to exhibit some level of humbleness where in selling a business that may not serve you so well. But if you have an advocate who's talking to buyers who sort of sings your praises or tells your story in a more dynamic way, that's going to position you in the mind of that buyer in a better
0: way than you probably can do yourself. That's great. And I think the converse is also true, right? In And the converse is that if you're comfortable to sing your own praises to the nth degree, that can be off-putting to the buyer. And so I remind you, Dan, of a transaction that you tried to effectuate for us where the seller was so over the top and effusive about how great the company was that you, know, you started looking at me and going, we've got to look deeper now. right?" And so having this objective third party to be able to speak To some degree dispassionately, but enthusiastically about the attributes, I I think is a critical component. And I've made that mistake. I wish I could say only that one time, but I made that mistake a second time when I sold another business. And so, have you encountered the other side of it where people are just too, they're blowing the trumpet too loud and too hard? Yeah, many times. And the term that comes to my mind when
1: you were talking about that and having reflected upon it is, I just think people are put off by arrogance and many business owners, by the very nature of what made them successful, which is incredible self-confidence, incredible drive, incredible resilience, it also sort of gives them this hero complex. And I find when they're talking to sophisticated buyers and they're coming across as I'm so great and I'm this know-it-all and I'm just amazing, Most of the times that I see that happen, it's very off-putting to buyers, even if it's a good company, because I just don't think people like to hang around people that are arrogant. And that's how it comes across.
0: I think you're right. And I, I would say that that's a particular challenge that we have in healthcare that we work on, whether it's, you know, a CEO like myself who might get too full of himself or a physician lead who, you know, forgot to stay connected to the team. And so I think that there's a double whammy: is that our industry has that anyway, and then if you add on top of it, you know, this ability to create a business and then want to sell it, it can be really magnified in healthcare. And and you know, you you're making me think. And as we've been talking about, kind of this drill down about the things that you've seen that people need to think about when they're selling their business my thoughts are how does that apply to healthcare? And I'm curious if you have a perspective of what's going on in, in healthcare and acquisitions and in mergers. Today, I've got a theory, but but I'm going to let you speak to it first and maybe we can talk a little bit about that from a global perspective. Yeah. Well, I
1: think I'll I'll take it a step up first and just say the activity in terms of acquisitions in the healthcare space continues to be remarkable. I know, (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, even if we look back at last year with COVID and not just healthcare, but all different sectors, I mean, we work in technology, manufacturing, distribute all kinds of companies, you know, back in March, April, May, everything really slowed down because nobody quite knew what COVID was going to do to us. And we all remember those days, you know, when businesses started dropping in performance and people weren't, weren't quite sure. And so, you know, it's definitely true that last year, the number of acquisitions was lower than it would have been without COVID. The, the dollar volume of deals was probably down by a third. The Number of transactions wasn't down that much, maybe 10%. So the volume of acquisitions in healthcare continued to be strong. And part of that is buyers and investors know from the last recession we had, which was brutal, 2008, 9, 10, that one of the fastest recovering sectors was healthcare. And so buyers look at that history and they say, well, I know what happened before. And so yeah, COVID was a, a difficult time, but if anything is going to do well, it's going to be healthcare. And so money continues to pour into healthcare for all kinds of deals. And, you know, even though the first half of last year was slow, the second half was super strong in terms of transaction activity. And from what we're seeing in the beginning of this year, first quarter looks to be exceptionally strong for acquisitions. So in some ways it seems like the pandemic sort of shook healthcare up a little bit and said, maybe we need to revisit some of these sectors and get more efficient. And that seems to be happening as we head into 2021. But I, I would tell you at the end of the day, there's still an enormous amount of money out there looking for healthcare deals in all different sectors And when there's lots of money and lots of buyers, that's good for sellers that are well positioned to take advantage of it.
0: You know, and it's interesting because tying this all together, somebody hearing this, Michael, well, this is the perfect time to sell. But if they were listening to you, it would have been, you should have been getting the house in order three years ago. So when these moments come, you're already ready and you're at your best position, right? And it's going to be frustrating, I think, as people find that there's more money in the market. I'm in your page, I'm seeing it all the time, but not everybody is ready to sell. And so they're thinking more money means really high prices, but it still comes down to those fundamentals. And so I think some people might be disappointed in that they're not getting these high dollar amounts that they think they should because maybe their house isn't in order. Is that an accurate thesis or am I being overly negative?
1: No, I think you're right. That And that gets back to what we talked about earlier, that you should always be running your business with the idea that someday you're gonna sell it. So if you have that mentality, that means starting now, you make sure you have good financials. You make sure you have low customer concentration. You make sure you have a good team. You make sure that your company has a good growth story. You make sure that you have a moat around your business, meaning that, that you, you have the ability to deflect competition. If you're focused on these fundamentals all the time, when a good cycle comes around, like we're anticipating this year, you are positioned to go forward. And and that's gets back to what we talked about at the beginning. Business owners should always be running the business with the idea that, Hey, I might need to sell or want to sell next year or the year year after you never want to sell under pressure. You always want to
0: sell when you're in control. That's great. And pressure could be good and tough pressure. Pressure isn't just when the business is doing bad. Pressure could be I'm pressured because I think this is the peak opportunity because there's so much money in the market. That's a different kind of pressure, but it's still pressure. No question, there is pressure of all kinds. It could be there's so
1: much money that I feel like I ought to take a deal a few years earlier than I would have. Yeah. The other there's other pressure. Maybe my company's growing so well that I can't capitalize it anymore. I need a partner. I need somebody to come in and help me grow it faster. So it could be a financial constraint, even though you're doing well. Unfortunately, some of the pressure that I've seen quite often with business sales are unexpected events. It could be you have a health issue. You know, something happens where you, you have to go take care of yourself. Or sadly, it could be a divorce or it could be a partnership dispute where your partner wants to leave and you want to stay, or vice versa. There's so many different things that business owners don't anticipate that often trip us up because we're not ready and they do create that external pressure to have to move sooner than we're ready.
2: Encompass Healthcare Data Solution focuses on collecting the maximum from your revenue cycle. The revenue cycle management team regularly performs top 10% of outsourced billing companies with a clean claims rate of 98.05% a zero-pay denial rate of 0.015%, and average days in AR of less than 24 days. Your practice could go back to focusing on providing quality health care to your patients without the nagging concern of leaving real dollars on the table. Encompass's Revenue Cycle Management solution provides unparalleled visibility and control into your revenues by providing a comprehensive dashboard and reporting system, the same reporting and dashboard system that the Encompass team uses to manage itself. Like most other revenue cycle vendors, Encompass only gets paid on net collections. Unlike other companies, they have a highly developed and unique denials management system that helps to ensure that your practice gets every penny that you've earned. For more information, go to EncompassHDS.com, select Revenue Cycle Management, and schedule your discovery call today.
0: You know, it's interesting because I'm thinking about what you said about COVID maybe shook up healthcare. And I was thinking about a couple of things that I know that have happened. One is that this loosening of the rules regarding telehealth and the change in reimbursement for telehealth has expanded, certainly in mental health, but also in rural environments, the ability to bring care to people and increase your catchment area. And by increasing your catchment area, you're increasing the number of bodies that you can reach. And you basically have grown your business by a regulatory change that many people think is going to become permanent as a result of the response to COVID. Right. And so that creates less risk and more stability for a lot of these businesses. And it's going to be interesting as we come out of this COVID to see how everything settles right I'm talking from a regulation standpoint this money that you're seeing do you have a sense of you think the whole year is going to go gangbusters you think next year is going to be the same kind of hot market or do you not really have a sense yet well I'm always careful with my crystal ball <laughs> i put putting you on the spot my
1: friend because if I had a crystal ball I wouldn't still be working for a living and you certainly uh, wouldn't be on this podcast Yeah, exactly I, you know, so <laughs> so my way of looking at things, I'm kind of a data freak and I'm also just a researcher and and I just study dynamics in the market. And based on what I see, I think we're positioned well for at least the next 18 to 24 months in terms of the healthcare sector for robust activity. Hmm. I think some of that, interestingly, you mentioned COVID, some of that's driven by the fact that a good portion of healthcare was substantially benefited because of covid and now on the other side some parts of healthcare really struggled because of yes. because of covid so for example I mean, you know in terms of areas that i think spiked or just just went crazy during the last 12 months because of covid one obvious one is like hospital beds right if you imagine to manufacture hospital beds you probably had gangbuster year because we had such demand in the hospitals it, If you were in the business of making ventilators, if you provided the prescription drugs that were used to treat COVID, that then you you're doing great. You mentioned this just a minute ago when you were talking about telehealth. Behavioral health is skyrocketed. I mean, unfortunately, so many people are having challenges where the behavioral health system is the place they need to go and we need to help support them other areas that we saw just go crazy during covid obviously personal protective equipment ppe yeah. um, home health went really strong online pharmacies did better than retail or whatever because people preferred to buy their pharmacies online and not have, have them shipped yeah that makes sense no. testing equipment i mean testing equipment went bonkers because everybody was trying to figure out how to test for covid so you know, and we could go on and on with parts where that did really strong and they're probably going to continue, but there's other parts of healthcare that I think are on the other side of that spectrum where COVID hit them pretty hard. And I think they'll probably the most obvious one was all the services and all the different aspects to elective surgical procedures, because those were essentially shut down for months. So anything to do with that definitely struggled last year. I think. Uh, from what I've heard from my clinical stage clients, pharma trials really struggled because they couldn't they couldn't do their trials in the hospital setting, and they had a hard time recruiting patients into their trials. You know, I've heard, I've read that ER visits were down. I've heard that primary care visits were down. So there's certain aspects of healthcare that I think are going to come out of it, and I think they'll come out strong this year as COVID recovers with the vaccination program but it's a little bit of the have and have nots that we're seeing in terms of who did well and who struggled during last year.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I want to drill on that a second. Definitely, we saw uh, a decrease in fortunes for um, hospital-based groups in some ways. So, uh, if you're an anesthesiology group and a lot of your business is Based on elective surgeries, either in the hospital or at surgery center, surgery centers all but shut down. And so all of a sudden you were out of pocket and not having as much demand. Hospitalists, we saw see a decrease and then an increase. And then the, the family practices and like I said, surgery centers and even urgent cares really took a hit it'll be interesting to see how they rebound and what that market disruption will do to shake out some of the weaker players. And it makes me think to ask you, where's the money coming from? Is it private equity money? Is there? Is it consolidation? Do you have a sense of that or is that too big of a question for you? Well, money is definitely coming from private equity.
1: Yep. Um, there's a term we use in the business. It's a little bit of lingo called dry powder which essentially means how much money private equity has sitting in their funds i.e. bank accounts that they have available to make acquisitions with sure and, you know that's literally a trillion dollars or so depending on which study you look at i mean there's wow. just an enormous amount of money sitting with private equity and what makes private equity unique as a buyer is private equity is fundamentally set up to make money by buying If they don't buy companies, they don't make money. So they have this urgency to put their capital to work, which is what we hear a lot in our business. You know, we talk to private equity firms all the time, and they're essentially calling us up saying, I've got this money, what do you have for me to buy? So that momentum is in the market, and clearly private equity is enamored with healthcare right now. There's no question about it. The other two kinds of buyers that we see in healthcare typically the bigger ones, of course, are the much bigger players. So, you know, we'll see a a Gilead make acquisitions in the biopharma space or, you know, Johnson & Johnson or Medtronic. You know, the big, big players are buying up companies that have innovative products, innovative drug pipelines. Uh, So we see a lot of money coming in from what we call strategic players. So those are the... folks in the business that are have enormous capital, they're public companies, so they have access to raising huge amounts of money at very low cost in this current environment. And so they're using that access to capital to buy up smaller up and coming companies to fill their next generation pipeline. So we certainly see a lot of activity from the strategics as well as the private equity. And then we can add along with private equity certainly smaller groups, but there, there's hedge funds that have gotten active in making acquisitions in healthcare. And to a certain extent, what are known as family offices, which are yeah. very high net worth folks who maybe made their money in healthcare and, and now, you know, they want to invest some portion of their of their family wealth into buying other healthcare companies. So those are probably the primary acquirers that we see in the market today.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you giving us that insight. And it makes me want to drill down a little bit about the private equity. What I'm seeing maybe as an uneducated, uninformed observer, but I'm seeing enough of it to go, it seems to be to be a trend is that I'm seeing private equity go into markets and try to own a specialty within a geographic area. And so they're buying practices up and maybe they say, hey, we want to, or we want to own podiatry in Houston, or we want to own you know, ear, nose and throat and and their attendant surgery centers, you know, in California and they're buying these up. And it's interesting because one is I want to see if you're seeing that or if that rings true to you, because I think it presents a unique challenge for the physician owners. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, but let me see if you agree with the thesis first. Yeah, I, I
1: definitely agree. Private equity has over the last several years, been buying up They're they're doing what they would call a buy and build strategy, which essentially means they'll look for a fairly large physician practice in a specialty that they'll buy as a starting point or launch point. They'll call that a platform purchase. Right. And then once they own that platform, then they'll look to add on other practices that are in the same subspecialty to build scale to essentially move the back office functions away from those physicians. Their goal is to have the physicians totally focused on practicing the medicine and have people in the back office that are centralized doing the billing, the revenue cycle management, credentialing and so forth. And so, yeah, we're definitely seeing that strategy play out within private equity where they're buying and building scale And the end game there, of course, is the larger they can build that, the more leverage they have with the payers to to get better contracts.
0: And so, so they're gonna try to drive the economies of scale by centralizing back office and administrative function, and then negotiate more lucrative contracts that these individual players couldn't on their own. And then also when you start increasing the EBITDA, there's a third way to increase it, right? Because the multiplier might go up as their EBITDA goes up. So they have three different ways that they are looking to make money on that deal. Exactly.
1: Right. And and the bigger the company, the bigger the EBITDA, as you mentioned, the bigger the multiple. So if, if they're buying practices and hooking them together at, at a lower multiple, but that adds up to a larger multiple, that's also a way they make a huge return on their investment. So The key for them is they're very selective about the sectors they go after. Not all sectors fit this profile. And so once they do find a sector that they like and they find that platform, then they will will very aggressively go after other similar businesses to build this larger physician practice that could be regional or even national.
0: You know, it it leads naturally into this area that I've seen firsthand, which is, by definition of what, what you just so eloquently described, there's an actual misalignment of values of this new partnership, right? If ostensibly the physician groups first and fi- foremost is to deliver high quality care, that may or may not be in line with a desire to streamline cost, right? Which might mean, hey, we want to make sure you're spending 15 minutes in the room, not 22 because... MZ needs 22 minutes as opposed to 15. So there may be some production and pressure. There may be some expense pressure that you can't run the business. And so there's this other side of it that the physician owners really have to think long and hard about what it means now to be an employee. If this isn't the value realizing event that allows them to say, I'm good and I'm done forever. Right. Right. I think that's correct. What I would say is it's interesting how the private
1: equity group will approach the doctors. Essentially, the message is we're going to pay you as well or better compared to what you're paying yourself now. And we're going to alleviate you of all the challenges of administering a practice. We just want you to focus medicine, which certainly for many doctors these days with all the administrative burden sounds very attractive. That's all. Yeah, you're right. The other side of that, as you mentioned, is you know, private equity investors want to return on investment. So to drive return on investment, I want that doctor to be more efficient. So there is that pressure as well. What I've seen, however, maybe not all private equity groups, certainly private equity groups have come to understand that patient care and patient satisfaction is every bit as important. So if I push a doctor to... That's interesting. Turn patients too quickly and the patients start going somewhere else, I'm shooting myself in the foot. And I think as private equity learns this sector more and more, they're realizing I've got to keep my patients happy because that's the gold for a physician practice.
0: You know, it's interesting, Dan, because if you had you know, put me on the spot and said, do you think that private equity understands that or doesn't? I would have said, absolutely not. And so it's really interesting that they're educating themselves on the market and then finding a different way to understand what success looks like. You know, that's been the argument for a long time, right? Is that the patient gets lost in that shuffle. And so that's a really interesting perspective. It's actually encouraging for me that the people who are making the whole machine hum, the patient, aren't seen as, you know, a product on the assembly line and there's an understanding that their satisfaction and well-being and good encounters is directly related to everyone's success. That feels like a sea change to me.
1: Well, I think it's happening.
0: I and I want to be clear, it's not happening with
1: all private equity firms. Sure. But certainly the the ones that I know and and respect, that's what I'm hearing from them and that's what I'm seeing and that's what I find encouraging and to your point You know, that's where it needs to be. At at the end of the day, for our healthcare system to do what it's supposed to do, at the end of the day, we have to take care of our patients correctly, properly, and with respect.
0: Yeah, it is the goal. It's easy for us to say. It's really hard to do sometimes. Yeah, it's a a challenge. This conversation is, these ideas are making me think of some of the other functions that are involved in buying and selling a business, a practice, an IT company. But I'm looking at the clock and you've generously stayed here for three quarters of an hour. So what I'm going to I got two choices for it. I can make you stay here for three more hours or you can promise uh, to come back because there's a lot more stuff to talk about. You know, there's a drill down on how long does it take to sell a company? You know, how do we value a company? What are the ways that, who, what's the difference between a strategic buyer and a value buyer? What's the, all of, there's a lot of other things to cover, but we just don't have the the time. So well, I'll put you on the spot. Will you promise to come back and, and do part two of this because you've been a, a font of knowledge? Well, Michael,
1: I'd love to. I, I enjoy this conversation and I hope it's going to be helpful to your audience. And as, as you said, there's when we talk about mergers and acquisitions and buying and selling companies in healthcare, there's so many different topics that we could cover. And um, I think we've just touched the surface today.
0: Yeah, we have. And, but I got to tell you, I consider myself a little bit experienced in buying and selling businesses. And yet every time that I talk with you, my eyes get opened up and I have these aha moments of like, huh, I didn't think about that, or wow, that's a great perspective, or I didn't know that. And so I know that there's tremendous value for people who haven't been through a couple, three or four transactions like I have. It's valuable stuff and I'm greatly appreciative. Let me ask you this I'm sure that when people hear this, they're going to want to reach out to you, maybe with just questions, but I would encourage them if they're thinking about getting on the journey, they certainly should talk with you to, so they can. You can help them figure out what that looks like what's the best way for people to get in touch with you
1: well first thank you for the kind words and i've certainly enjoyed the conversation today in terms of how to reach me i i think the best way is just my email address because i literally check it far more than i should (laughs) my my email at forbes mna is is dan d-a-n dot roth r-o-t-h Forbes, that's F-O-R-B-E-S-M-A, so com, And so I'll repeat that. It's dan.roth at forbesma.com. And I think that's the best way for folks to reach out to me. And if there's anything I can do to help
0: answer questions, I'd be more than happy to. I will tell our listeners that Dan is very generous with his knowledge, his expertise, and his connections. And so I strongly encourage you just to reach out and touch bases. You never know when you're going to need a ethical, smart, experienced investment banker. And so it's always good to have one on speed dial. Dan, thank you for your time today as always. And uh, I'm going to hold you to the promise to come back. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it a lot. That was an illuminating conversation I had with Dan. Two things he mentioned really stood out to me. First, was that he zeroed in on the idea that if possible, we should always be managing our businesses with the idea that one day we will want to sell them. That's no small task, but it's very important, I think. And two, he reminded us that the day we initiate our value realizing event will probably be the single largest transaction we will ever be involved in. It sure does give a bit of perspective on what selling a business entails. And that got me thinking about current times and opportunity to cash out this year. For sure, we are in a superheated market today. In fact, some basic healthcare industry numbers are quite eye opening. HFMA reported that in Q4 2020, our year of the pandemic, counterintuitively showed a 21% increase in transactions over Q4 of 2019. PWC reports that private clinics and hospitals providing primary and elective care are facing consolidation in roll-ups because government financial support is winding down and struggling practices are running out of cash. And the combination of high investor demand, scarce assets, and abundant financial capacity is a recipe for high valuations and high-speed deal-making, and experts predict this to continue for the next 12 to 18 months. So those stats let us know that there is high demand, vast amounts of available capital, and a window of opportunity. But if we need to have been staging our business for years, how do we capitalize on these market conditions today? And should we even be looking? I think the answer is starting with the end in mind. There are three main questions we should ask ourselves. What is the minimum amount of money you would accept for the business and feel good about selling? Notice I said the minimum amount, because that minimum amount leads to the second question. What do objective, knowledgeable observers value the business at today in its current iteration? Not what we think it's worth, or what it might be worth if we stage it for sale, but what the market is willing to pay for it today. And three, what do we wanna do after we sell? The answer to this question dictates the terms of the deal, but not necessarily the price. If the answers to questions 1 and 2 are in sync, then I think it would be painful to not at least get a sense of the deal-making possibilities that exist today. The future what-ifs are worse, in my opinion, and the prospect of a deal never materializing. But because a huge percentage of many owners' net worth is tied up in their business, it would be wise to have a trusted guide along the way to help consummate the largest single transaction you will ever be involved in.
1: You've been listening to the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. For more information, show notes, guest profiles, and more, visit encompassmedical.com and subscribe to the podcast at
0: Apple iTunes, Overcast, Google, or wherever you get your podcast.